Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Today is the first of the Caring CEO because I'm actually interviewing two people. Lena Calibria and Andy Forshaw are the co-founders of Bellroy. Lena is their Chief Operating Officer and Andy the CEO. Bellroy is an Australian company that makes really innovative wallets, bags, phone cases for today's workers and tourists. They originally met while both doing an engineering degree at Melbourne University. From being founded in 2010, they have grown very quickly and have recently raised $12 million for further growth. They are an accredited B Corp, which means they are assessed by how they add value to all their stakeholders. Bellroy was also awarded number one in the small business category of Australia's 50 best workplaces. So they're obviously doing a lot of things right. Being in a travel-related business, they were certainly affected by the pandemic, but they came up with some really clever ways to respond to this. We discussed how they helped ease the stress of their employees when COVID first hit. And it's one of the best approaches I've heard about in those very early days. They also partnered with their suppliers and retailers to come up with lockdown relevant products and ways to market their inventory. A great example of this was how they coached their retailers to sell more online. And this was obviously a win-win outcome. Both Lena and Andy are passionate about business helping to contribute to a better world. And they're an example of an Australian company that is doing great things internationally as well. Enjoy. It's a great pleasure to welcome Lena Calabria and Andy Forshaw to us today, both the uh, co-founders of Bellroy. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Nice to be here. What does care in the workplace mean to you? And we'll start with uh, Lena. Yeah, I think um, this is super interesting. When I when I was thinking about sort of us chatting today, it really struck me that care felt like uh, there was a people stream that I wanted to think about, and so. When it was about um, people, it felt like listening to people and then matching up with how they were growing and developing. And then there was also this things stream. So, you know, there's so many things that we do in our day. There's decisions we make and people that we talk to or meetings that we go to. And so care in the workplace felt like it really related to the things that you did and how you did them. So, yeah, for me, care in the workplace is um, how you work with the people that you have and how you look after them and then how you care for the things that you're doing and, and how you pay attention to that. And so Lena and I work incredibly closely with Guiding Bellroy and so um, often we each come at it from slightly different lenses and it's interesting as Lena described that, I was thinking more around care on a time frame, a time horizon and there's many things you can do that... Um, can care for people in their sort of short-term immediate emotional needs, the yeah. responding, feeling like they're being listened to. And then as Lena described the things that are important, I was saying that almost as 
are you goal aligned on a person's long-term development? So moving care out of just a sort of short-term, what are their immediate needs? And thinking a lot about, are they actually on a meaningful path? And are you genuinely aligned between what the organisation hopes to work with and nurture and move, as well as how the person themselves is thinking of their own growth and development? And so, yeah, I guess for me, the care was, are you really aligning mm. towards a long-term goals, objectives, pathways that um, will help them sort of look back in 20, 30 years and say, gosh, that was fulfilling. Gosh, that was meaningful work. Yeah. Gosh, I feel like I grew as a person. Um, and thinking of those long-term horizons, which sometimes in the moment, cannot be as tangible or, or right there to focus on. I love that. Like it feels like if we merged those two answers together and we took like a, a stream of like people caring for people over time and sort of what do they need now and what do they need in the future and caring for things over time and what does it need right now but how do we nurture it for the future I feel like we could sort of do a whiteboard kind yeah, of situation. Well, the classic consultant two by two matrix, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and all of a sudden you're filling in each of those squares. Totally. Yeah. And, and I've also seen that you've um, made decisions, business decisions around not disregarding the longer term as well. Like you recently got some finance to ex help with your expansion and you deliberately went for partners that were interested in longer term, not ones that are looking for a 10x performance in the next year sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was a, a really interesting how that, you know, then passed on to the finance side of your business. And even before then, uh, you set up uh, Bellroy as a B Corp. And uh, it'd be great if you wouldn't mind explaining to our audience what a B Corp is and why you chose that path. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Benefit Corps or B Corporation is a movement that is, uh, I think many talk about it in different ways. I, I think of it as a movement that says, can for-profit businesses be about more than just profit? And so there's an assessment um, platform architecture that looks at many different areas where businesses can demonstrate they're motivated by more than just the profit motive. And so they look at um, social responsibility, they look at sustainability, they look at transparency, they look at many areas that businesses can focus on and you're essentially graded for all the good things you're doing that are beyond the profit motive. Mm -hmm. And if you can get above a threshold, then you can be certified a B Corporation. So the B Corp movement is a global movement. I think uh, many thousands of businesses now are certified B Corporations and you then go through recertification every three years as well to ensure that things haven't drifted. Or you go through recertification if there's a significant ownership change or something else in the business that might start to skewer towards different behaviours. And so I think, you know, we we started conceiving of Bellroy in 2008, maybe, um, and we first launched in 2010. And from get-go, we, we ourselves as well as our families have always 
wanted to add value to the world, wanted to do more than just make money and accumulate things. And so we'd always had quite a philanthropic focus, quite a for-purpose focus. And to sort of bridge into the first part of that question, for the first years, we were really trying to understand where we could add the most value. We were donating a lot of money to some of the world's most effective nonprofits, things like Against Malaria Foundation, getting um, insecticide impregnated bed nets to those in third world areas where malaria was really strife, give directly, many great causes. And we were feeling it out, but we started to realise that um, when we looked at businesses that had noble intentions or noble values, sometimes they could actually drift and they could start convincing themselves of certain stories. And, you know, a classic example is Enron. Um, you know, it's it's maybe um, heaped on a bit too much over the years, but on their walls they had these great values of respect and integrity, integrity, integrity all these great values, and we all know where that story <laughs> finished. Um, and so a few years into Bellroy, we we realised that if we're really to live up to these things, it would be good to have some external people actually really getting in and looking at what we're doing and saying, well, you're, you're saying these things, you're, you're preaching these values, but are you actually living up to them? And at that stage, we looked across the world for interesting um, platforms that might do that in a way where they could acknowledge many different ways of caring and improving the world in, in sort of business as a force for good approaches, but platforms that could also evolve and keep acknowledging that thinking in those spaces is evolving. And so we're great friends with many of the Patagonia folk. we They'd been retailing our product. And as we were talking, they're like, look, we really think B Corporation's a great one. We looked at it versus many others and we ended up agreeing with them. We thought there were some really excellent global businesses taking pioneering roles in corporate social responsibility, ESG space. And when we looked at how it was run, how the scoring was run, how they reviewed it and debriefed it and, and kept evolving it, we thought that looked like the best one we could find. So I think our first certification was in 2015. Um, we've been recertified since um, at each milestone. And we really think it's a platform that not only assesses the company and gets in and, you know, they, they have people sifting through your documents, sifting through your approaches, really understanding it. But it's also just a wonderful um, network. Um, there's a lot of trust amongst fellow B corporations. There's a lot of work together in what some companies would call pre-competitive space, which is those sort of corporate social responsibility zones that, um, you can find apparent competitors actually working closely together to evolve better standards in animal welfare or better approaches to sustainability. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're part of that B Corporation community um, and, and we believe and it's, it's a great platform. Yeah, and as I understand it, you really need to consider all your stakeholders, right? So you 
and you have to add value and, and show you care for each of those stakeholders. So your employees, your customers, the community, uh, and your shareholders as well. And so it's a very holistic way of private enterprise really contributed contributing to a better world, which is uh, which is just sensational. We love it. <laughs> and Lena, um, you also have just recently won in the small business category. Number one in the great places to work, and that's uh, a huge feat. Um, and can you just uh, give some background about why you think you became number one in that area? Because it's obviously quite competitive. What were some of the important strategies you put in place? Yeah, I think what's interesting is that um, we we probably like practically like we went we we went for that certification or we applied to to see where we sat. In, in a way, similarly to what we saw in B Corp, which was these are external groups who can, um, I guess, have a look at you and say, here are some spaces where you might be, um, where you might be missing something or a thing that you could improve. And so, and I think your question is sort of the other side of this, but I think it's an interesting sort of lead into answering it. I think that um, we went out for uh, working out how we stood in the in the space of great place to work because we wanted to know where were we not a great place to work actually was the thing we were much more interested in. Could we get some feedback on where people were perhaps not happy or things weren't going well or we were missing it? Um, And so it turned out we didn't get so much of that feedback. Um, (laughs) In some ways it was a failure. (laughs) Which is probably a very nice situation to be in. But I suppose... um, I mean, one of the one of the most incredible pieces of feedback we got, which was just delightful and lovely, was that um, the staff, I think, unanimously felt that the the founders really um, cared for the company and had very high integrity. Mm. Um, and I think that that really rung out for me as to why did we end up being a great place to work and and sort of coming in as number one is that. I think we are both incredibly transparent um, with what we're doing, how we talk about what's happening, whether it's good or bad. Um, And things are never about people but always about things, right? So I guess looking back to the very beginning that if something isn't working in the company or with a product or with a space, it's, it's about the facts of the, of the thing that's happening. And it's never a person who's made the problem, but a, a situation. And so hopefully by creating that environment, we make it very safe for people to talk about things that are not working and and hopefully where we're trying to share a high integrity environment, that's worn off to create a great place to work. So mm-hmm. um, I suspect there's a lot of teeny tiny things that we do that got there, mm-hmm. but I suppose the feedback that I took from that is that us trying very hard to be transparent about Bellroy and about ourselves mm. has created a workplace that makes that a safe thing to do. And uh, when you had the first assessment, you said that not much was revealed, so it was a, a pretty good story. So you obviously were doing some things very well, you know, from the, from the beginning, and you've talked about the integrity, you've talked about thinking about adding value to your employees and your customers, Everyone faced the big shock with the onset of the pandemic. Um, it would be interesting to hear you discuss how that how that approach led you to transition through the pandemic and where are you now in that journey? 
I think like the pandemic, it came in waves. Um, and so there were different stages of things that, that had to happen. And probably the beginning point is March 2020, which is probably the case for everyone. But um, we, we were watching COVID closely and I guess assessing for ourselves what we thought the safety and danger areas were. And we actually closed our office um, before the before we needed to and created this concept called the all eyes meeting. So we essentially on a Thursday night sent out an email to everyone saying, look, we've looked at the situation. We'd like you all to come in really calmly on Friday morning, pack up your desks and, and set up to work at home for a few weeks. Because <laughs> like, That's what it'll be. And we're going to have an all eyes session on Monday afternoon with the whole company, all of us dialing in to talk about what's going on. Um, and, and that's how we began with us, you know, literally day after day working out what the right decision was. But it was interesting to see how, and, of course, it was, you know, we sort of borrowed the all eyes from the all hands on deck sort of scenario, but we were all unfortunately just looking at our screens. <laughs> um, but it was, it was basically us saying, this is what we know so far and um, we're going to be watching business performance really closely to try and understand where are their challenges. Um, I guess things got a little harder after that because it felt like through March and April our sales did respond really quite negatively to COVID. I think a lot of people in the world were probably not focused on using products to help you move around the world, which is what our business is essentially designed to help people with. And so our sales dropped really quickly. And I suppose on that transparency theme, we actually built a model for how Bellroy would respond depending on how deeply our sales fell and we told everybody what it was. So we basically said, this is our forecast. When we hit 80% of our forecast, I think it was basically we were going to take a pay cut. Yeah. <laughs> that happened. <laughs> and then when we hit 70% of our forecast, our executive team have agreed that they'll take a pay cut. And then when we hit 60% of our forecast, we're all going to take some annual leave. And we basically said, this is what's going to happen at every stage. Mm. Um, and we met every week and we updated the team to say, here's where we're at and here's what's happening and this is what it means for all of us. And we slowly then worked our way out of it. You know, May was a little bit better. Maybe we were back at 80% of forecast and then June was maybe still 80 and um, you know, we we basically survived the worst of it. But I suppose like something that we haven't said out loud exactly yet is that we try to build a lot of like models of how things work um, and how to describe what's going on. And so I suppose in response to COVID, we built a model of mm. like what are the things that could go wrong and what are we going to do about that? And then we shared the model with everyone to say, look, this is what we're going to do. And it would be better if we weren't in this situation, but at least you know exactly where we're at and exactly what we'll do when it happens. And I felt like the team were very reassured mm -hmm. to know what our thinking was and to, to know that they could predict themselves mm -hmm. how difficult things might or might not get. Um, so I think that was sort of, I guess, first pass response. I don't know what. Then what happened there? Like, what do we do after yeah, that? Yeah, so, and it, it was interesting because this was in a context where that's not how many peers and competitors were responding. Um, there was a lot of advice at that stage of cut early, cut hard, 
you know, protect the business, do these things. And as we were thinking about the phenomenal crew we have working with us, there's no way we wanted to throw them on the unemployment heap unless it was the only thing that could save the business. Mm. And so we were in a we were in a good place financially. Yeah. We we had done the investment round. We we had reserves. That's all part of us always wanting a resilient business. And we were watching this almost decimation go through where great folks were being stood down, laid off, those sorts of things. And I think us being much more open with that plan of, look, we're going to do everything we can to keep the crew together. It, we might have to suffer in some ways. We might have to take some leave that we wouldn't have otherwise taken. We might have to do a few things here, but it was that zone. And I guess the other thing we said was let's innovate our way out of this. And mm. so we have many product categories at Bellroy. You know, we make bags, wallets, tech kits. We make many different things. And so we looked into that suite and we said, well, if people are no longer travelling, if they're no longer moving large distances, what are they doing? And so we really doubled down on, well, now they need small crossbody bags to carry sanitizer and masks. <laughs> they're going to need laptop sleeves because they're working remotely and all these companies are now swapping from desktops to laptops. And yeah. what are the other areas? Well, they're going to be on their technology a lot more. Can we really double down on our phone case program and, and really make better experiences and products there? And so I think we asked for buy-in from the whole company on helping us innovate our ways out of that. And that's not only in, you know, the product mixes and the channels, that was also in the way we were going to organise work. Like we were now going to have to be running meetings remotely. We were going to have to do these other things. And so it, it was a sort of whole company approach to, okay, our tech team, so um Bellroy has some many, many phenomenal programmers and developers, and some of those were already working from around the world and collaborating remotely. And it's like, you guys can teach some of the other departments of Bellroy the tools you've used. How do you co collaborate yeah. asynchronously rather than only synchronously? Mm. How do you do these other things? And so it was a, in that way that we said the all eyes, it was a sort of all hands on deck of let's think about how we can find the green shoots and bring more attention to those. Yeah. Let's park things that are going to feel like a Sisyphean task at the moment, you know, pushing a rock uphill. Let's let's put those to the side for the moment, look at the things that have real and, opportunity. And like that really makes me think you you can't actually do that. You can't get people to be open-minded in that way unless they feel incredibly safe and secure. Yeah. And, you know, and trust, very high levels of trust. Totally. Mm. And and you know, we've never run Bellroy right on the edge. Um, when we when we did the fundraising that we did, we didn't like we didn't have to do it. It was more that we really felt like we wanted to bring sort of new advice and partners into the company, mm. and we we were in a very financially secure situation. We never spent all of our money growing sales. We mm. we we kept money in the bank for in case when we needed it, and so I think we had. We had a lot of goodwill built up, not just in the people relationships, but like in the business structure and in the supplier relationships, that there was a lot of capacity for safety, that we could create a safe environment and then people could do all of the things that Andy's talking about. Yeah. Um, 
if you've been running your business right on the edge of survival for for four years and then COVID comes, you don't have any, you don't have any fat, right? Like you don't have any any sort of capacity to do something hard. And so yeah. it, it felt like we were ready for that difficult season because of probably the sacrifices that we'd made in the years before that maybe made us look sort of conservative or considered or careful or cautious. Like we, we looked like that coming into COVID, but it, it meant that we could really take the offensive rather than having and, to play defence. And I, I think a really nice tangible example of that was that people's lenses moved from themselves to all of our partners. So um, we saw, you know, our wholesale team took some of our e-commerce expertise and helped work with some of their smaller brick-and-mortar retailers, their physical store retailers, to help them move online and sort of recover that. We worked with our suppliers and we realised they were having orders cancelled from so many of their other brands. Mm. And so we tried to work out how could we move some extra work to the suppliers that were struggling and were having orders cancelled. Mm. And, and, and so I think that security Lena spoke about, like the evidence was that people could move beyond their own needs and actually start to move out to our customers, our suppliers, our partners, the others, and work out how they could then help them through radically difficult times. Yeah. There's so many things that I really love about your response, like the, you know, setting up the model, the transparent model, and my wife, who's a professor in epidemiology, she would be very <laughs> pleased to hear that this also applies in business. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and that transparency, I think, you know, once people know what the rules are and also where the pain's going to be, that is a huge step towards creating that trust and that sort of transparency. And the other thing I love is, you know, we're going to innovate our ways out of it, you know, both from products but in, also in terms of how we deal with our customers and how we deal with our suppliers. It's, uh, you know, it's I, I really love that really holistic innovation going through a real crisis and uh, where it's not just adding to your value but also, you know, to all your stakeholders as well. So fantastic. Bellroy has been a... Um, a great success, and uh, it'd be great to know a little bit about why you why you uh, started it, how you met, and uh, and also where it is now, and and what are your what are your goals now? Yeah, do you want to go with the why you started it? Yeah, <laughs> um, I think it's his fault. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm to blame. Yeah, so um, I, I guess even stepping a touch earlier than that, so. Um, uh, the other co-founders uh, is my brother, Matt, who's also Lena's partner, mm-hmm. and um, a designer, Hadrian, who came out of Rip Curl to help us early. And so essentially we've been working in different parts. Um, uh, uh, Foxhaw Wheels and Casters is an industrial company that makes wheels and casters under all sorts of hospital equipment, high-end equipment. And um, Matt and Lena met at university um, studying engineering. And I also studied engineering, but product design version of it. And we'd all been a little bit involved in the family business. Um, We really liked working together. I think it it was at a time when um, we were working at different stages and areas and working in different parts of the business, but we could really see 
a lot of shared values, a lot of shared approaches. And then we each went off and did other roles. So I went off and became a supply chain consultant for five years, um, I guess, looking at sort of how factories ran through to how you plan stock in supply chains and um, how you, I guess, make sure you meet customer demand all the way from the beginning. But that was sort of supply chain consulting. That was my five years. And, you know, it's interesting, Pfizer was one of our accounts at the time. So I spent a lot of time in Pfizer and I think they kind of went off everyone's radar and I've been thinking about them so much recently with their vaccines. And um, so, yeah, we worked with Pfizer and Royal Mail and Australia Post and did lots of sort of supply chain planning work. And that was sort of my five years out of engineering degree. And, and I I went and chased the design. I uh, moved to London for a bit, designed there, then uh, came back to Australia and worked for Rick Curl, um, the surfwear brand, and took uh, started in a very junior position but ended up managing a couple of their global divisions and one of their divisions was the equipment division which made um, all sorts of accessories from surfboard bags and travel gear wallets all sorts of things in that um, department and I could see that um, the the carry game the way um, bags and wallets especially were made wasn't being optimised for the customer enough. It was almost being optimised to be easy for the factories to make. Um, And so we together, after a little while each with these other careers, we we realised we wanted to come together and work together. Um, We realised there were many things that when you move into a legacy business, you, you can control some things, but not all things. And I think we started to think about what if we build some businesses from scratch and really shape them from the ground up to be the sort of organisations we believe could add value in the world and, and do good and do these things. So we actually started many businesses together, um, <laughs> a few too many. They were sort of started on, you know, the smell of an oily rag for yeah. several of them. Others took a little bit more. Um not necessarily an advisable strategy. Uh, no, I, I think at one stage we ticked over nine businesses, but some of them were tiny <laughs> and others were more significant. And um, one of those was this realisation that um, bags, wallets, travel gear, luggage had often been designed by the same departments and teams in companies, but there wasn't really a word to unite those products. And, and we were like, really, they're carry. They help Mm. you carry. They help you move through the world and carry your things. And so we thought um, if a brand set up with that lens of carry, it it might actually create many more synergies in how those products work together and how they help you move through the world. So in 2009, we began a blog called Carryology, um, which was exploring better ways to carry and, and really building a campfire where people that wanted to think about this stuff could come around and think about it. And then almost a year later in 2010, um, we launched the first Velroy products and they were slim wallets. So that was at a time when wallets were big and bulky and kind of <laughs> terrible. And we realised that this thing called a slim wallet could just take up much less bulk in your pocket, be a much nicer product. It, it It's not too many ingredients involved, you know, leather, threads, some lining. It's, it's, a, it's a clean supply chain. And we thought there's ways we could um, develop them and, order them and move them around the world that had much less 
fat in it. It, it was a much more agile supply chain and mm-hmm. and less less waste in it. And so, yeah, we we began a range. We launched with five wallets in 2010, and then the journey sort of went from there. I whenever you, I think of uh, fat wallets, I think of that Seinfeld episode with George Costanza. Exploding <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> wallet, wallet explodes with all the all the receipts all over the street. So I can understand the attraction yeah. of the uh, of this of the slim wallets. And so, Lena, the next year, what what are your priorities the next year? I guess coming out of. Last year, we, you know, something that was a gift for us with COVID was an opportunity to perhaps explore a a channel that we might not have thought of, which was the tech space, you know, basically products that help you carry your tech. You you know, we had phone cases, but um, laptop carry became really important, Um, you know, iPhone, iPhone, oh, iWatch carry um, mm. became really important. We, we added a whole lot of tech pieces because it really resonated with what was happening in the world. And I guess as we look forward to the next 12 months, um, we're delighted to see that the outdoors has become something that people can really embrace. And again, and perhaps even something to do with COVID is that people are embracing the outdoors a lot more. And so we feel like we're coming back into our strength now where Bellroy can really help people move in the outdoors. And maybe it's like a dog walk going really well, or maybe it's a weekend away with friends, or maybe it's a hike. Um, But we'll definitely be focusing a lot of what we do on helping people in the outdoors, Um, but not, not sort of in a traditional outdoorsy, intimidating way, a way that feels, um, feels comfortable for people who perhaps haven't necessarily always spent their life in the outdoors, but also feels capable enough that if you are a, a pretty regular outdoors person, um, we've got some boxes ticked as well on that side of things. So that that's I think that's what you're going to see us talking about um, and, and sort of sending product that way. If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. One of the um, things that I don't, has, don't think has been properly acknowledged is the, the toll the pandemic took on leaders and management groups um, and you've explained your approach to that but it's been tough for many many managers because I've seen people often try to go out of their way to help provide connection and help people to be engaged but often at their own expense and uh, I'd be really interested to understand 
how you both practice self-care. What are your self-care strategies to keep fuel in your own tank? Such a good question. And yeah. <laughs> you're right. I think um, I think most of the folks you get on the podcast are those that see leadership almost as a service job. Like you're there to serve and support those that are helping bring visions to life. And so that means you are often the last one in the chain. And, and if if slack needs to come from somewhere, it often comes from mm. the leaders in an organisation. Um, I, I think each of us have families we love that really energise us. I think each of us also, and as well as all our crew, have hobbies and passions and things we love. Um, you know, for me personally, surf is my my um, meditation, my nature immersion, my social uh, actions. I surf the same way most of the time. And so, you know, I know all my gang out there and it's this great re-energizing moment. And if, if my family are in a good spot and I'm able to go out and kind of take that time to surf and have that mindful activity, that's certainly one of the things that recharges my batteries. And Yeah. And I mean, so I really like animals and particularly horses, but spent the whole of my adult life dreaming of being able to ride regularly. And so last year I bought a horse and decided to restructure my life so that I could sort of leave the house, drive an hour away, go for a ride and come back. And so I think that the the sense of making sure you don't put off till later the things that are really valuable, like mm. I think that was a very strong lesson for me is that, um, you know, Maybe one day we're not in these roles and it's it's probably very easy for us to say after Belroy, then we'll do it. Um, you know, after Belroy, we'll have the, buy the horse, have the, you know, the house near the coast or whatever it is. And I think not saying that, I think one of the things that's super hard for me and I probably Andy has the same is that it's really easy to feel guilty doing that. It's really easy to feel like you're, like not giving enough to the business and like you're being selfish or greedy or something like that. And so, like, I think that's the devil to fight with is um, finding a way to like give your, yourself permission to do it now and not put off till later. Um, I, the other thing I, re- I really love going to see shows. I love watching people in musicals and plays and, and performing and my kids really love it as well. And so, I mean, my gift for like myself last Christmas was an MTC, so Melbourne Theatre Company subscription, and I bought two tickets and I thought to myself, I'll find someone every time. <laughs> and so far, I've, in fact, I've had arguments because everybody wants the other people. Um, but, you know, again, it's like how can you do a thing, like create the time for those activities and not feel guilty about them? I really love, um, you know, both your choices and they are different choices according to what you really love. And uh, I should add that for the listeners that uh, the bell in Belroy stands for Bell's Beach (laughs) and Andy is a very uh, keen surfer at Bell's Beach. So it's it's lovely to also include the passion in there. so the Roy is for Fitzroy, but I don't know many horses in Fitzroy. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, the, that that fits the. Uh, I mean, that fits the fun city part. Like you know, it's. I, I think that sort of going and seeing shows example. I love being out in the world, watching people doing things, eating dinner, seeing a show, and I mean Fitzroy is like 
cultural <laughs> explosion, creativity, yeah, alive. It, it feels like it's, it's so yeah. alive. Um, yeah. And, and I think you're both right that, it, you know, it can be that uh, people, managers think it's selfish to do that. And that's why in my keynote presentations, one of my big messages or mantras is self-care isn't selfish. You know, you mm-hmm. can't support and build others if you're not in great shape yourself and you have to consciously, you know, keep topping up that uh, well-being and uh, level of resilience. In terms of how you make decisions in Belroy, what's the process for tackling difficult things? Um, you know, a, a tough decision. How do you how do you do that? Just thinking, you know, as I was like thinking about transitioning out of our last meeting to this to this meeting, um, I was just thinking about oh, there's so much interesting decision making stuff that we just were going through. Like, and the honest answer is that I think. A difficult decision delayed as long as possible is like one of the best ways to make a a difficult decision because I think decisions are difficult when you don't have enough information to make them well and that's what makes a decision difficult. And so I think often you can can make really great ground in a difficult situation if you really understand what could I do to get some more data. Um, If we decided next week would we have a tiny bit more information that, that would take this from, like, difficulty nine to difficulty eight? Mm. Because, you know, once it's all said and done, if you have all the data, it's always easy to know what the right decision was. And I think the thing that's hard is that you you don't have it. And so, I, you know, we were talking a lot in our last meeting about a decision that's coming up for us on a product choice. And we were really saying, could we make this, what, what could we do now that would give us flexibility and allow us to make this decision later. And so um, that idea feels so important to me. And I, I think just an important balance for that is Lena's talking about the really difficult decisions. If your organisation set up, well, many decisions are not difficult. Right. <laughs> and so if you have great processes, so, you know, we, we do consider ourselves a values-led organisation. And so we've really bought clarity to what those values are. We've set up structures. We've set up processes where many decisions feel inevitable. It feels like it's the only decision you should make in that space. Mm -hmm. And so what that's doing is it's clearing out all those micro decisions to be handled properly by your processes, by your culture, by the ways it's set up so that when you hit a really difficult one, you've got a little bit more time for it. And so it's not decision paralysis. It's actually, no, handle the baseload, handle all of the standard operating things in great processes, cultural norms, those sorts of things. And then that actually creates the space to then say, well, what's the latest point we could make this decision before it starts cutting off other optionality or other um, possibility space? Yeah. And so it's... It's almost if you have the discipline day to day, then you do have the time to delay the difficult ones a little bit more Mm -hmm. and gather a bit more information. Yeah, I really love that concept of having, you know, the culture and um, the processes in place that little things happen automatically. It's delegated down or it happens just as part of the way that you do business so that you do have more time. But I guess one of the other things about COVID and that has taught us is that we can't have all the information, can we, before we make a decision? It's just impossible. 
And, and just to say there, uh, Lena spoke earlier about, um, you know, something goes wrong. It's it's never really focused at a person. Mm. It's instead the things or the processes that led to that. Mm. And actually, in a thriving organisation, you should be having small failures constantly. Yeah. Like there should be small things going wrong constantly that mm. then update the process or, or you have a debrief and you understand where was that wrong? Was it wrong in our timing? Was it wrong in the information we had at hand? What is it? And so there's never an expectation that everything goes well. There's small experiments happening constantly, many of which say, you know what, that's not the way forward. That's great. We now know that. We can carve off that whole section and say we're not going to look at that again for some time. Mm-hmm. And and so it's, it's really creating an organisation where people know um, they can make experiments, things can go wrong, and that's actually a really healthy outcome because it's generating information about better possibilities, better opportunities. And, you know, sometimes all you have is a 55 versus 45% chance and you have you choose the 55% chance and that means, like, you're going to have plenty of cases that things just are not right and you realise mm. afterwards that it's the wrong decision. But I think... If decision making is about the process that goes into it and not about the individual who chose the right or the wrong thing, mm. then it, it, it's okay when things don't work out. I, I think we really try hard for it to be okay when things don't work out. You know, that that's just part of the plan. Yeah, I, I read um, a book by Ray Dalio uh, called Principles. He's a very, very successful hedge fund owner and uh, he maintains you've got to have a a, um, a culture where it's okay to make mistakes, but unacceptable not to learn from them. <laughs> so <laughs> I really like that that twist at the end. And I read uh, it's just part of the research for this about you know a lot of your success in online sales has been doing lots of little experiments, trying it out, and uh, and by and it's such a, a good philosophy to have as part of your DNA. I also really liked a, a book called Great by Choice by Jim Collins. And it looked at really, really volatile industries like semiconductors and and airlines. And there was always one player that massively outperformed everything else. And he put it down to this concept of fire bullets and cannonballs. So what it means by that is that you are doing lots of firing little experiments all the time. When something gets traction, then you invest in it and, and fire a cannonball. And uh, you know, it sounds like you've benefited from that sort of approach. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. And the bullets and cannonballs metaphor is is lovely in a few ways. I think many people think of sales growth as happening almost as this linear line, or mm. they think of the emergence of a company. But it, anyone that's been in the trenches knows it's fits and starts, it's staircases. You have several projects, some of which are nascent and you're sort of exploring. Others, you've found your product market fit. Now you're going for efficiency or scale. And actually what it looks like is there's times when if you push on a space, it's not ready for it yet. Mm. And other times when it's ripe and ready and that's when you've got to load up the cannonball and go for it. Mm. And so if you have that culture of lots of little experiments happening, but then also noting when things are ready for the big push. Mm. You know, I think we're we're more deeply invested in our tech platform, our laptop slaves, our phone cases, than we would have been at this stage if COVID hadn't happened. Yeah. And, you know, that was realising there's this shift happening right now and right now's the time to take, take it 
Otherwise, it might not have come for another few years for us. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that notion of having a nose for tractability, like noticing when something's ready for traction and, and yeah. when it's lining up properly and how do you build feedback loops and sensors out there that give you that sense of now's the time to load the cannonball. Um, it is a, a very important skill that's part art, part learning, part mm -hmm. frameworks. You know, it, it, yeah. it's a bit of a mix of things. Definitely, definitely. I'd be interested if um, either of you have a particular leadership philosophy that you've learned from someone or a book or a TED Talk or whatever that has really been significant in the way that you lead people and uh, lead the business? It ends up being a lot of small pieces from a lot of places along the way mm. um, because you need different things at different times. And, you know, at one time you might need, you might need like a bit of Elon Musk gung-ho, mm. um, but another time, you know, somebody that as soon as you said that, there is someone that does stick for mind for me, which is a guy named Alan Mulally who um, came through Boeing and then ended up as the CEO of Ford and mm. now a board member on Google. I think um, Alan has a very measured and team-inclusive approach that is, is someone for me who regularly hits the right button that I'm kind of hunting for, mm. but... It's it's not always right. That's just one that I think I think he's he's someone that isn't super well known necessarily. Probably in Australia, probably much more so in the US. Um, but I think the way he has an an inclusive leadership approach mm. and very much an approach of trying to flush out where are the problems that are going to come um, really resonates. And yeah, I remember hearing about him, and he was um, very big when he took over at Ford to have this big control room, you know, where everything was accountable, you know, each week sort of green, amber, red. And red. And, and the, the red <laughs> was really the important thing. It was exactly. how exactly. red mm, to reveal yeah. themselves. Um, and I, I guess just riffing on that, I, I don't want it to feel awkward, but um, I, I personally I've taken a huge amount of leadership from um, Lena where I think when things are nuanced and multifaceted and there's there's many things feeding into them, that apprenticeship model of having seen things play out in many different circumstances, many different contexts, helps you learn not one way to approach it, but a way to sort of smell the landscape and lay it out and then move and adapt. And so, for instance, I, I, I feel... I'm um, very fortunate that I've got to watch Lena's evolution as as we sort of to and fro with Bowroy a lot. And there was a time where I think I saw Lena really go deep on understanding different types of folks and where they are in, in their journey. And, mm -hmm. and she, she went deep on many different um, frameworks, ways of thinking of sort of horizontal ways of um, helping understand different patterns that play out in people as well as vertical frameworks as where they were and, and getting to watch her day to day use those frameworks to help start to get a sort of 60 to 80% sense of where something was at then she could pay attention to the nuance around it where are they really different to those frameworks and what's not what, what's quite unique to them, what's not fitting the regular pattern. And so I think for me even, I've, I've just thoroughly enjoyed 
my sort of apprenticeship in getting to watch many of Lena's approaches to those nuanced leadership decisions day to day. And I think that's why people talk of the influence of, you know, the five people you spend the most time with, those sorts of things. Yeah. I think we do learn many of these things through that's apprenticeship so models. Yeah. I love the whole apprenticeship learning model, um, perhaps as a counter to a university learning model. And I think mm. I think that for society we totally have to be careful that we don't lose apprenticeship as a super valuable way of learning. Um, mm. yeah. It's learning, learning by doing but also under guidance, isn't it, you know, which uh, and you know, feedback, probably the strongest so. way that you can do it. Yeah. It's been absolutely fantastic uh, catching up today. I just have a couple more questions, which I always ask at the end and um, be interesting to get both your perspective. If you had someone come to you, um, just say it's outside of Belroy, but someone come to you who'd been a good uh, employee and had the opportunity or had been promoted to manager, and they said to you, I really am keen about having a high-performing culture and a caring culture. What, how would you do that? So how would you answer that to them? Uh, I, I, I guess I could lean on a couple of frameworks again here. Um, there's a thing about, uh, so Robert Keegan is a, a psychological sort of development thinker um, with a lot of spaces, and he talks about um, holding environments. And in a holding environment, it, it's meant to represent that, you, you trust people have your interests at heart. You, you trust that there's a goal alignment and, and you're aligned that way, but you're still challenging them. You have an open enough relationship that you can say hard things. You can have difficult conversations. You can tease things out. And so what you're really trying to nurture there is their growth and the growth of how they are as an individual, as well as how they interact with other individuals, how they coordinate. And so I think understanding like those aspects of the environment. And so sometimes we think of that as a culture. I think, you know, we're, we're intensely rigorous on how we recruit. We're, we're after smart people with good intentions who can get shit done. We're after folks that, um, hold multiple things. We we really don't bring in folks that we think will tear apart at the safety and the coordination, mm. but they're motivated to grow. We're looking for folks that want to realise their best potential. And so I think some of the advice I might give that manager is the culture and the way you set up that environment, you need to establish that trust and that sense that people have the best interests at heart but then back to almost the first part of this conversation, you, you also need to make sure there's growth there and, and teams are learning to knit together more and more closely. They're learning to coordinate. Things are too complex for one mind to generate great solutions these days. Most of the time you need coordination. And so to spend a lot of time looking at culture and culture as a word gets sort of moved around a lot, but do people feel safe when they're coming? Are they able to bring more of themselves to work? And are they genuinely motivated to solve problems with teams and folks and processes rather than just individually being the superstar um, that will come up with the answer? And so really paying attention to 
cultures of meetings, of coordination, of how teams are working together. I think investing in that area means the management and the leadership has more scope. There's more levers you can pull because you can have conversation, difficult conversations. You can work on process. You can do all those things. Uh, That's That's one place that I went. I think Andy's thought, like, I think you you started as well with, like, I wanted to plus one when you said, um, well, you have to begin with who joins the company, right? Mm. And, And understanding your culture enough so that the recruitment process is about actually trying to convince the people that they don't want the job and seeing if they want it anyway. You know, (laughs) you really need to find, you need to view recruitment as them recruiting you as much as you're recruiting them. So start with the right people. Um, The the other thought that came to mind, which is a nice balance to what Andy said, because I think Andy's response is is sort of organisational. And I was thinking about like in the personal relationship as a manager, you need to balance people's um, I guess we talk a lot about towards and away goals, but you need to balance what people are striving towards, what are they trying to get done, what motivates them, and their away problems. Like what are the niggles that are going to make them upset? You know, did they get upset because they didn't have the coffee that they wanted or because they get the sun in their eyes in their desk? And these things, like sometimes it's easy to focus everything on the away problems Mm. and it's easy to also focus everything on the towards problems. But I think one of the things as a manager is that you need to know when a person is held back and troubled Mm. and when a person is like wanting to run and you have to help them have the right direction. Um, That felt like a focus that... There are lots of different ways of um, saying that. And yeah. just uh, Teresa Amabile had some research a little while ago that was um, in workplace settings, tangible progress yeah. towards meaningful goals yeah. is one of the most satisfying, meaningful things. And we've actually modified that to put a comma and together at the end. So tangible progress towards meaningful goals together mm-hmm. and in a way that's sort of balancing the away and the towards yeah. it's it's making sure there's a long-term view of you know what you're shooting for yeah. but you're also feeling that traction and that tractability spoke of yeah. and and so that can be a nice way to sort of capture some of that as well yeah yeah I've, i really enjoyed her book also the progress principle where she she talks yeah. about that and it just it sounds so simple but it you know, it's it's profound, the profound in terms of the motivation, the creativity. Yeah. It's uh yeah, and it's wonderful to see that you've um you know picked something like that and put that into action. So uh, thank you for that uh, example. And uh the final question for both of you is uh, you know, knowing what you know now, all the um bruises and cuts and bumps along the way. If you go back now and talk to your 20-year-old self, you know, in engineering at university, knowing not what you know now, what advice would you give them? It's a it's an interesting question because I I have a little bit of a thing that I try and live by, which is to try and not regret things that happen. And so I do have a sense of not wanting to go back and fiddle with what's happened in the past. And that's where my brain goes when I hear that. Um you know, I, I feel like things worked out kind of well for us. Um, and so it's it's interesting to think about um, what would I say? And But there is something that I think I didn't realise 
in engineering at the time because that's, I guess, what you're doing when you're 20. I suppose if you're at uni, that's what you're doing. And that it's that you spend a lot of time solving problems and seeing puzzles that it is actually true you may never, ever look at again. And in my case, I certainly never looked at these things again. But you are learning. I was learning um, an abstract thinking skill that was about how do you take pieces of information and process it? And I think it probably took like 20 years to, maybe I learned it five years ago. It took 20 (laughs) years to kind of work out that wasn't about the problem at the time. It was about the thinking at a a level higher Mm. where you don't quite have your hands on everything. You have to build some concepts and models to put it together. And I think that's what the degree was about and that's what learning was about. I think it would be useful if my 20-year-old self kind of had a handle on that concept. Back then, she didn't. It's probably <laughs> fine. Um, but it, oh. it, feels, it feels like it's sort of a, a big gap for me yeah. between then and now. Problem is when we, when we are 20, we think we know everything, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We want to know everything way too literally, you know. Yeah. We want to know exactly why do I need this, exactly how is it going to be, and it's like, well. You know. and, I mean, it's interesting for me because at 20 I was also doing an engineering degree, but I, I'd started doing an industrial design degree, a product design degree, And it was the advice from my father and those around me saying, if I don't have the engineering component, I'll be too (laughs) wishy-washy. Like I need something with structure and rigor and those (laughs) things. And I so reluctantly was like, okay, I'll do the engineering. And I I never enjoyed it really while I was doing it. But exactly what Lena describes, it gave me some rigorous framework development. It gave me some toolkits. It it gave us a shared basis from how we could structure decision-making processes. It did many things. And so it was actually purely from advice from people 20, 30, 40 years down the track from where I was. I I didn't want to do it in the instant, but Mm -hmm. gosh, I'm glad I did do it now. So I, I think in some ways I was actually trying to take advice from future me by yeah. talking to dad, talking to the great folks around me who'd, who'd sort of gone through established careers, done those things. And they're like, oh, just add a bit more rigour to yeah. that pretty little design stuff you do. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm glad I listened. Mm. I, it didn't make it any easier. I didn't enjoy the engineering part much, but uh, <laughs> I'm, you know, at this side, I'm very glad I did do it. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, um, Andy and Lena, for your time today. It's um, been a really, I found it a really enjoyable chat. And it's, I, I love that whole way that you uh, navigated your way through um, COVID, the COVID crisis. So uh, well done. And thanks for being part of the Caring CEO. Oh, thank thank you. you. And thank you for such interesting conversations that you have with many and trying to share some of the learning and insights that others have won the hard way. So, Um, Thank you for doing what you do as well. I think we all get to benefit from it. Very appreciated. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable WeCare mental health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.
www.ngbc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Thanks for joining us.